So this film's a little long, and there were very large stretches of the film where I basically found nothing really to talk about or say, and I didn't have anything to add to it. So I've decided to do a slightly different approach to this than my usual film rumination, where I just kind of go through in order. Instead, I'm going to talk about a little bit of behind-the-scenes stuff, a few uh, thematic things and, and you know, thoughts that I found interesting and would like to discuss with people, discuss some of the characters that really just jumped out at me, and then really finish with the big thematic cores of the film. Okay, I hope you'll find that acceptable. I've been following the creation of this film since uh, about 2011, I believe, is when this one first really came to my attention. Although, from what I understand, thanks to my research, this film has been in development hell for a lot longer than that. Um, people trying to, to get together the funding or the interest or the political backing in order to get this thing made. Now, unfortunately, I wasn't able to find as many details as I'd like as to the specifics as to why nobody wanted to work on this film. But regardless of the whys, the what was undeniable. People were just like, nah, nah, for a really long time. It wasn't until uh, 2014, I believe, according to the notes I just jotted down here. It wasn't until 2014 that they actually finally started to be like, okay, we're really going to do this. We've got some principal casting going on. We've finally got some people signed on. We're going to start doing principal photography soon, you know, blah, 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 blah. And... They approached this film very strangely. First thing I want to comment on, I know this is a weird thing to comment on, but I want to comment on this first because it's so relevant to the original Blade Runner. In interviews, uh, Mr. Ridley said more than once that, of course, Deckard will be in the film, of course, Harrison Form could be in the film, but that he wouldn't necessarily be in the film. They were decided on that for quite a while, actually. And when asked why, his response is, well, he was a Nexus 6, so he'd be able to live long enough to do this. Now, I point that out because, as I pointed out back in my Blade Runner rumination, basically everyone involved in the creation of Blade Runner had a different opinion on what Deckard was, whether he was human or a replicant. Ridley Scott obviously always believed he was a replicant and went forward with that assumption in mind. But what I find most interesting about that is they never confirm or deny that Deckard is a replicant in this film. Now, I like that a lot, actually. As I believe I mentioned during the Blade Runner, Blade Runner Rumination, I don't think the status of his humanity actually matters, and I think that is part of the point, that he is defined as a real person, regardless of the origination of his birth. And that certainly ties into some of the themes of this film, which I'll discuss in a moment. But I do think that's an interesting approach, where they just kind of dance around it, reference it a few times, but they continue to leave it up to the audience's decision and portrayal to decide exactly who and what he is. Next thing I want to talk about is they made an interesting approach in the creation of this film, because they acknowledged that about, was it 30 years? 30 years or 35 years, I forget which, uh, have passed since the original film. And in so doing... A lot of significant world-altering events have happened since then, which they allude to several times. The biggest and most obvious of these is the Blackout, which is covered in the 2022 Blackout uh, side story that they released. There's actually several side stories they released. I was only able to glance at a few of them. I didn't really have time to really dig into them. This is already a three-hour film. <laughs> Good lord. Um, 
But we do we do know that several replicants, in an attempt to even the playing field, decided to launch some significant EMP attacks, which caused really, really significant damage, because that's what EMPs do. I know we all like to think EMP is like the stun setting, but that will fry electronics. So, uh, yeah, things didn't go well after that. And um, another thing that's mentioned is the sheer level of power and influence that Mr. Wallace has. Now, what's funny is Wallace has an extremely small number of appearances in this film, to the point where it's actually kind of funny, considering he is the predominant main villain of this film, and probably of the next film, assuming they ever make it. I'll get to that later. Um, I find that funny because he was one of the more interesting characters for me to write about. I have more notes on him than anyone else except for K, as we get down into my notes here. But what we do know that Wallace did was he was like, you know what, Earth is starving. I'm going to make this new specially engineered food that can actually be grown because, well, thanks to the incredibly increasing toxicity rate and the environmental damage, uh, plant life and animal life has basically been dying out. There is, as with the first film, a lot of visual storytelling here. We see exactly what's become of San Diego in the wake of L.A. utilizing it as a literal dumping grounds. We see what happened at Vegas, although, again, not a lot of details. There was just a dirty bomb dropped there. That's about all we know. Um, we see uh, hints and details of what's going on with the ocean, that the ocean is incredibly toxic. Probably my favorite little tidbit of that is this thing, you know, this this water is 99.9% you know, recycled, non-toxic water. And then it's like, and that's all he gets. The film goes out of its way, visually, to showcase just how much worse the world has become in the last 30 or 35 years and how messed up life is for everyone here. Which is funny, because, <laughs> well, I suppose I'll save my thoughts on that for later, but let's just say it's in contrast to the off-world colonies. Uh, but again, lots of hints, lots of background world-building that isn't really explored or built, on, uh, built upon in detail. And the film also ends in a way that almost guarantees that they were, they were trying to build up towards some kind of a sequel. Oh, excuse me, Wallace himself is still at large. You know, they have the thing with Deckard and Anna, and there's the all-important replicant resistance, which has been kind of slowly building in the background this entire time. So they got to go somewhere with that. Next thing I want to talk about really quick is... Uh, I, I suppose I want to talk about the, the world thing I just mentioned. The seawall, it's, it's snowing in July. That's another point I mentioned here. What I love, and I don't know if this is deliberate or not, is I find there to be a stark contrast between life on Earth and life on the colonies. Life on Earth is presented as this dirty, disgusting, grungy, horrible existence, but we see a lot of pretty decent, notably honorable, and uh, generally heroic people on Earth. Now, we see terrible people, too, but we see some... Uh, if I'm to just summarize my thoughts, I feel like Earth is the planet that is, on the surface, a complete hellhole. But underneath has had more... Basically, for lack of a better way to put this, and I suppose this is an accurate terminology to use based on the setting, I feel like Earth has more soul to it. No pun intended. Now... We don't learn a lot of specifics about the Outworld Colonies, but there are a few tidbits that make me think that the Outworld Colonies are the exact opposite of that. That they are brilliant paradises where people can live comfortable lives and have commodities and even luxuries that are just unheard of down here on Earth. But 
But, but we do know a couple of things about those outward colonies. First of all, they only exist on a massive understructure of what is effectively slave labor. Say what you will about the replicants, but this is a constructed slave race. See Star Trek The Next Generation's A Measure of a Man for a good, brief discussion on this exact topic. These are manufactured slaves, but slaves nonetheless. And secondly, it is implied more than once that the legal boundaries, the... How do I put this? Legal is the wrong word. That the moral and ethical boundaries of the outer colonies are basically non-existent. In other words, that they are beautiful paradises on the surface and much more horrific and rotten within. This is also shown in a nice contrast to Wallace himself. Sorry for already talking about him, but look at his office. Look at the way he is. You know, he's, he's this immaculately kept gentleman. He's always very, very stark, very precise in his movements. He almost comes across as robotic, actually, which is genuinely kind of... And he's got this massive... He's got wood actual wood furniture and wood linings on his walls. He's got the giant pool and the water, clean, clear water. And he is easily the most disgustingly evil person in this film, to the point where it's actually kind of pathetic how evil he is. I'll talk more about him later, I swear. But once again, we see that kind of visual contrast. Uh, and to use a direct comparison, Deckard looks haggard and dirty and tired and worn and has a good core, a good soul. Now, I already mentioned the sequel hook, so I suppose I don't have anything else to add about that. They keep referring to a line, uh, baseline. You have to do your baseline test, make sure that you're what you should be. I, this is entering the realm of speculation, but I like to think that the baseline test and the nature of the new Nexus 9s is that they are subject to droid effect, which is a thing you can see on my Lorium's page on my website. I'm not going to bore you with it now. I refer to it a lot. That's why I have the Lorium's page there. I like to think that based on the way some of these characters are presented, most notably uh, K and Love, both of them seem to go, for lack of a better term, past their programming at several instances in this film. Uh, the most obvious example is when Love tells uh, Joshi, uh, God, I, think I'm, I don't even know if I'm saying her name right, you know, I'm just going to say that you attacked me. You know, it'll be cool. And then she stabs her viciously to death, flat out admitting to being willing to lie to her boss. And yet one of the things that is demonstrated, the, the, the key selling point of the Nexus 9s, even the military combat grade Nexus 9s, is that they are unflinchingly obedient and cannot lie. Now I think this, this is on purpose and builds into a point I'll be talking about with regards to Wallace in a minute. But I think the baseline test is their attempt to try and maintain an absence, to, to, to resist droid effect to prevent these beings from becoming more than they were designed to be, to restricting them within their programming. I also think that Mr. Wallace is full of crap in his whole, yes, they are perfectly obedient and perfectly subservient. I, th I think he is um, full of donkey doo-doo with regards to that. Which brings me to my next point. Let's talk about Wallace. I could compare and contrast Wallace to many different characters within the course of both of these films, but I think the most interesting contrast to me, the most interesting character study is Tyrell himself from back in the first film. Now, Tyrell was not a good guy. 
But he was a very gray, leaning towards dark gray character, and I'll talk about that a little bit later too. He was someone who was clearly an artist in his presentation. Someone who wanted to craft something perfect for the same reason an artist wants to paint or draw or write or whatever, something perfect. That he was all about that design. Yes, he had power and money and prestige and fame, but that was all tools to accomplish his actual ends. Now, by contrast, Wallace is a nobody. Nothing anywhere that I've found insists that he has any scientific knowledge or capacity whatsoever, that he is a pure businessman, and that the actual aim and goal is his own elevation to literal godhood, as well as the presentation of his, I want more power and money so that I can have more power and money. He is much less human or I, I'm going to use a different term here, he's much less real of a person than Tyrell was. It also helps to inform um, his... I'm try... I've, I've actually had trouble writing this down in my notes, too, because I still don't have the perfect terminology for it, but he's basically pathetic to his own eyes. I, I know, he's blind. But you get my point? Wallace shows several signs of having a severe case of lack of self-esteem. The fact that he... One of the things that helps me lean towards this is the fact that there is a very dark and unpleasant implication that he wants to be the literal father of the new generation of replicants. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, remember, he is always completely interested in Rachel and in the child, Anna. Spoiler alert. Um... That's his big focus. He shows no interest whatsoever in Deckard, the father. Because, well, this is the way I took it, and this is, of course, pure interpretation, but based on his God complex, based on the fact that he believes, uh, he thinks so little of himself, he gets so upset every time it's pointed out that he is a failure. Every time. It, you feel like it's just a really sore spot for him. That he, with all his power and all his money and all the time that he has had, can't actually replicate the success of Tyrell 30 or 35 years prior. And you could just feel that sore spot bugging him. And given his repeated comments of, you know, these are my children and they are my angels and I am in heaven, blah, 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 blah. I get that general impression, especially since he wants humanity to reach out to the galaxy on, on a wave of replicant corpses. He doesn't say it that way, but that's effectively what he wants. He even makes the comment, but I can only make so many, which does lay his motivations bare. He wants slaves that are always loyal that will make more slaves for him. He, <laughs> My analogy is, is pretty literal now that I'm thinking about it. He wants a wave of replicants to sweep out and to carry humanity out to the stars. Now... First of all, I like to think that uh, Wallace here is very much a part of the problem. Now, I know that sounds like a duh, but what I mean by that is someone with his level of power and resource and access and, and everything that he has could probably try to find less nightmarishly horrible ways in order to pr promote human supremacy or human expansionism. But instead we see, yes, no, we need more chattel. <laughs> he doesn't say it that way, of course, but that is effectively what he comes across as. He, is, he also demonstrates a significant amount of cruelty in his character. And I want to point that out. Now, see, some people probably disagree with me on this, and that's fine. I actually anticipate people who disagree with me on this point. But to me, he seems a lot more cruel, whereas Tyrell was a lot more apathetic. 
Tyrell was more amiable, more kindly, fatherly approach in his tone and his posture. But ultimately, when Roy came to him and begged him for life and help, Roy his response was basically, I cannot help you. You know, you it, it it's not just it's not apathy in the typical sense of I don't care about you at all. It's more like your plight doesn't matter to me because you have already done so much. I mean, you the the star that burns uh, the candle that burns brightest burns uh, brief briefest, right? By contrast, Wallace actively goes out of his way to hurt and torture people, and flat out admits in what is the closest thing he demonstrates to anger that he's going to ship Deckard off world to those lawless areas of space in order to have him introduced to new levels of torture. Also, quick aside, uh, one of the things I've seen a few uh, people who've analyzed this film question is, what could be worse off-world than that they have here on Earth? Uh, my immediate thought was the Agony Booth, either from Star Trek or from Alpha Centauri, take your pick. In other words, a form of torture that doesn't actually do real physical damage, just stimulates the pain, and then just lock them in there and leave them in there overnight. There's really, really horrible things you can do to a person once you have the total lack of ethical bad backing to do, to do whatever you want to. So I, I can totally see there being worse off-world. Let's see here. Certainty. I like that, too. One thing I want to comment on, Tyrell was totally self-assured. He had a complete and total certainty of who he was and what he was doing and why he was doing it. In fact, there's a pretty good chance that Tyrell is behind the plot of this film. I'll get to that next. Wallace doesn't present any of that. If I was to compare Wallace to a typical character archetype, it would be a child who has found a gun. And no one else around him has a gun, so he's the only one with a gun. So he's better than all of them, but he's still a child. He still rants, he still rages, he still has no actual understanding of what he's doing or how he's doing it. Nowhere is that more apparent to me than when he has the failed uh, new model come in and he's like, nope, stab. <sighs> I'm bored with it now. It's not what I want it to be. I wanted the blue one, not the red one, mom. But that brings me to uh, the Tyrell thing because I have a thought here and I'm curious how many of you thought the same thing. How many of you think Tyrell pretty much engineered the circumstances by which Decker and Rachel could end up together and ergo have children? To me, this makes perfect sense. It fits completely with Tyrell's mindset, first of all. You know, the artist. The person who is trying to do it to craft a great work. He's not doing it to make us a sea of slaves. He's doing it because he wants to be more human than human because he wants to try and push that envelope in a way no one else could or no one else has. And it's interesting to note that if you really pay attention to the events of the first Blade Runner, and I was thinking about this going through this film, that Tyrell pretty much just lets Rachel and Deckard kind of end up together, pretty much pushes them towards each other, and then as soon as things, he just hands off, nope, nope, completely hands off on her. He also refers to her literally and deliberately as an experiment, and nothing more. Just food for thought. <clears throat> so I suppose I should actually talk about some of the characters in this film. <laughs> Let's talk about Anna. 
Anna is an interesting contrast to Wallace as well, because Wallace is in his big, horrific doom place with his extremely expensive stuff and is horribly evil and seems to, it seems to have a near total lack of sympathy or empathy for anyone or anything else. By contrast, Anna, who is locked away in her private room with no contact from the outside world for any significant matter, has a great deal of sympathy and empathy for people outside of that bubble. She also goes out of her way to, for lack of a better way to put this, to craft art. She puts some of herself into the world. And I'll talk more about that a little bit later because it, it, this ties into to the first of the two main themes. She goes out of her way to, metaphorically, touch the world. Whereas Wallace goes out of his way to, metaphorically, ignore the world until he can do what he wants with it, basically. Um... I also have a quick thought about Anna, and I'm curious what you guys think, because I've, heard, I've, I've thought of three different exam, uh, uh, possibilities for this. Anna's in that thing because of her immune disease thing, right? Do you think that's real? Because obviously the easiest answer is she really does have some kind of immune deficiency disease thing, so she really does have to be in there. That would make sense. She is the prototype, you know, replicant human or replicant replicant child. Ergo... Not all the kinks have been worked out yet, so that makes a degree of sense. But at the same time, it's also possible she was put into there for her own protection so that no people would be able to test her or scan her or find out her secret. And it's also possible that there's a merger of these two ideas, which is my third idea, that she was put in there as a, as a front and as a consequence of being so not interacting with the world, her immune system never developed. So she has effectively developed an immune system deficiency. This is actually a common idea both in real life and in science fiction. You know, if you are living in a totally sterile environment your whole life, your immune system is just not going to be able to deal with being plopped down on a planet, right? Um, let's talk about love. Love is an interesting contrast to Roy for me. Roy was 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 the knockout ma amazing character of the first film, in my opinion, and without a doubt the most interesting character to talk about and think about when the film was done. Love, by contrast, is the exact opposite of that. She is a killbot who is remorseless and actively sadistic and goes out of her way to do things for cruelty's sake and no other real purpose. She also, as I mentioned earlier, demonstrates several hints of droid effect. In fact, I have a personal theory that she knows droid effect has been happening to her and that she has been deliberately hiding that from her boss for fear of being reverted back to baseline or worse, deleted, which would add an amusing amount of human ethos to the character. But otherwise, that's all I got for her. But I do like how they visually demonstrate her slow breakdown from the calm, confident, almost like lightly flirty secretary at the beginning to the psychopathic raging machine at the end. Let's talk about Kay. Now, whoops. <laughs> Kay is, in my opinion, a brilliant character for reasons that I'm going to fail at explaining, but I'm going to do my best here. Kay is a viewpoint character. He is not the main character of this story, and he is not the nexus point of the events of this story. This is, in my opinion, the story of Deckard and Anna as told from Kay's viewpoint, if I'm, if I'm saying that correctly. 
We, the audience, slowly learn more about him and about the world around him as he slowly develops more and more knowledge and understanding of the world around him. And more to the point, as thing, we spend a lot of time with Kay, so we get a little bit of um, like an emotional sink with Kay, uh, synchronization with Kay, to the point where when he, he, if you'll notice, he starts off the film pretty just base emotionless whatever he even does the baseline test and he's just like yeah no we're fine but throughout the course of the film he starts to feel more and more as these events become more personal and become more empathetic and and engender more empathy and sympathy within him and at the same time we the audience are revealed the same things that are revealed to him and through him we feel the same way or at least i feel like that was the deliberate intent it's not the most unique perspective of a viewpoint character, but I think it's a very well-executed one and probably one of the better aspects of the film from a purely construction standpoint. Kay's connection to Joy is also interesting. I haven't even talked about Joy yet. I want to talk about Joy because, ironically, I'm not 100% sure if Droid Effect has happened with her. Because if you pay attention to the details... I have a very strong feeling. This is purely my opinion. I have no facts to back this. And I'd love to hear your thoughts as always. I think Joy doesn't actually have any real, quote-unquote, feelings for him and has not developed past her programming. But I think Kay absolutely has real feelings for her. There's a lot, I'm not going to list them all, there's a lot of little details that lead me to think this way. But as we see, everything she does to him and for him is in line with the original advertising for her program. And is in line with the programming that is implied to be built into her code. Most notably the I will say what you want to hear part. And she does this several times throughout the course of the film. Now, you can think this w about whether this is real or not real. That's up to you. Again, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on this. But I think this is relevant because it, once again, it, it helps to serve as a, as a standing jump-off point for what I feel to be the third of, of the first of three predominant themes of the film, which I'm going to go ahead and talk about now, and that is that the fake can affect the real. Now, that probably sounds like a very strange statement, so I'm going to try and quantify this really quickly, okay? Bear with me. Segway. Let's say a rumor starts that the Ottoman Turks are going to conquer the Byzantines. Yes, I'm using this example because it's fake. <laughs> Just bear me out. And this, the, and this rumor is false. There is no Ottoman Turks about to attack the Byzantines. There, there is no army happening. But if that rumor circles and starts getting into the ears of people and the Byzantine leadership starts hearing it or the local military starts hearing it or, or the, the, the vassals in Athens start hearing it or whatever else, yes, I'm just kind of going to EU4 here, forgive me, that rumor, which is fake, can impact the real. You with me? Now... Most of you who are watching this probably understand the concept of the fake affecting the real because we like video games and movies and books and those are fake and we are impacted in them in a real way. But I point this out because the first film's predominant question was what is it to be human? Like, what is humanity? What is real? That's, that's something that was the overwhelming theme of the first film. But in this film, they, in my opinion, correctly avoid that. And instead go for these other three films, the th three themes, the first of which I'm discussing here. 
This is why I like the idea more that Joy is, for lack of a better way to put it, fake. Because her fake affection has a real impact on Kay. By contrast to my earlier statements, I think Kay legitimately has real feelings and love for this program. That I, I actually have no doubt in my mind that he empathizes and sympathizes with her and cares about her. Legitimately cares. If nothing else, the way he reacts after love destroys her permanently kind of makes that clear for me. Now, I'll admit this is still the, the realm of the debatable. But to me, that has more impact because... It, it shifts the focus away from, is this real, to, does this matter? Because it's no longer the relevant point of whether it's fake or real. That question is subsumed into insignificance. Because it doesn't matter if it's fake, as long as it has a real impact. And you can see this kind of theme throughout several other aspects of the film. Um, the, uh, the, the, the memories, Kay's memories which are real memories, but faked elements of those memories, causing the real impact on him, and thus the real impact on those around him. Um, Anna, crafting her fake memories to interact with the world around them. Uh, Wallace, again, I hate to go back to him, but he's just a weirdly interesting character to talk about. Wallace's deliberate crafting of the fake to control the real. This theme is everywhere in my opinion, in this film. And I love that, that, that constant presence at every layer of all the character interactions. It also kind of ties back to that whole the surface versus the core thing, the fake affecting the real. Now, I also want, I also want to talk about, really quick, I like the fact that, well, okay, First of all, let me just go and acknowledge that it is debatable if Kay dies at the end of this film. Now, in my opinion, there is no doubt that he dies at the end of this film. It just makes way too much narrative and thematic significance. It also is relevant because the camera stays with Kay rather than continuing on with the story that is still going. Because, again, this is a viewpoint story from Kay's perspective. So the camera stays with Kay. Furthermore... It is just too narratively similar, especially thematically, to Roy's death at the end of the first film. Spoiler alert. The, the death of a replicant to save Deckard, whatever he is, and um, his desire to have a real impact. See, once again, we can see the idea that the fake, and notice I'm putting that in quotes, uh, the fake K having the real impact on the real Deckard. Which brings me to my next point, and the second big thematic core. This is related heavily to the first thematic core. What makes you real? What allows you to be real, to have real impact and real significance? Wow, this thing is super tight. Sorry, it's a new blazer if you didn't catch this, and it is a size or two too small, so i got to not stretch and move too much. I don't think I'm going to be using this long term. <clears throat> I've already commented on several of these. Anna sees the world, uh, infects, uh, impacts the world, has an impact on the world, and that's what allows her to feel real. Kay's desire for his family, which is a thing I haven't even touched on, because it's a light little undertone and shading, but you'll notice it becomes a huge driving force, because to him, what will make him real is his impact on his family. And indeed, the fact that he lays down his life for Deckard and, and uh, Anna kind of leans in that direction as well. Then we have Deckard, who sacrificed his life 
not his existence, but his life for the sake of his child, something that was more than acceptable for him, and that therefore would be his real impact. And finally, and this is probably my favorite example of this, is actually joy. Now, I know I said earlier that joy was fake, but I also mentioned that that didn't matter. I think joy's method of impacting the real, of, of, of being real by impacting, is most easily demonstrated, not with the hooker scene, although that's <laughs> kind of messed up, actually. But no, what I'm talking about is the delete my core thing. So I will only be on the little mobile emitter thing, right? In other words, she has now been granted a degree of mortality so she can die like he can, and therefore that will make her feel more real. Which brings me to my final theme of this film. Now, the previous two themes I've talked about, everyone else has talked about. You know, I've, I've seen so many discussions about these themes, but I've never heard anyone discuss the what I believe to be the final theme of the film and the end of the work as a whole. There's a phrase, you know who you really are when you're, you know, you are who you really are when you're alone in the dark. In other words, when no one else is around, you show a different side of yourself. Nor is that true for me. I mean, I'll go around and go, and I'm a total goofball when nobody else is around. <laughs> but there's a related and similar concept. You know who you really are when you're at your absolute worst and your absolute best. You see the true character that lies underneath, and sometimes people aren't even fully cognizant of whom they really are until they have been through their worst and or their best. Um, I used to actually just think of that as worst, but I had to amend that several years ago because it occurred to me that it actually does go in both directions. I find this to be true in real life, personally. Um, the idea that when you're at your worst, you will react differently, and when you're at your best, you'll react differently. When you are above reproach, when no one can touch you, when you have no fear then you tend to act differently, don't you? When consequence is removed, not everyone's going to react the same way. We see this especially in basically every character in this film. We see how much of a deranged and, and sadistic monster that Wallace is when he is at his best. We see Deckard, who having gone through all of this, who is at his worst, is still willing to talk and discuss is still willing to sacrifice of himself for someone he loves. We see Kay at his best and his worst throughout the course of this film. At the beginning, he's on a cloud nine. And it's funny, because I, I imagine you'd look at this and be like, wait a minute, Kay isn't at his best, but think about it for a moment. Think about his apartment. Think about the kind of food he has access to. Think about the fact that he can purchase a holographic girlfriend. Think about the amount of space he has in his domicile. Now picture all the people down in the streets. Picture the people who don't have that kind of access or resources. Picture the people who are probably dying by the hundreds every time one of those toxic rains happens. He is effectively on top of the world, at least as far as he's capable of getting. Very high-end model, very high-placed within the local government, and he has the wealth and affluence to go with that. But what we find interesting about what I find interesting about this is Kay at his best is empty. He just finds nothing engaging or personable in what he is doing. So he reacts almost coldly and almost robot-like in virtually all of his interactions, except with joy, until he is brought down to his worst, which he does throughout the course of this film, where he willingly tries to, again, be real by impacting from the fake. 
almost said faith by accident there. <laughs> and I love that character presentation. It's one of the reasons why I hope he does legitimately die at the end of this film, because I feel that his story was completely told from beginning to end with no loose ends throughout the course of this film, my opinion. Now, there's other examples of this as well. If you pay attention to uh, Joshi, if you pay attention to uh, Marietta, uh, or Marionette, or whatever the hell damn name is, the Resistance Lady. Uh, love is a good example. We see how love is. is. Love goes through the same general arc that uh, Kay does to a much lesser extent. She starts off on top of the world, and she is empty and callous and cruel. And then when she goes down to the port where she is at her worst, most of that is is stripped away until all that's left is that cruelty, that barbarism. So we can see more of her character as we go through it as well. I love this presentation of the character dynamics and how we see uh, several characters at their best, at their worst, or in some cases both. And I feel that this is an excellent character drama, and I kind of want to watch the movie again, to be honest with you. I just don't have time. I don't, unfortunately, have much else to say, so I hope you have enjoyed my ruminations on this fine film, and I'll be seeing you guys next time.